Well, open up your Bibles, if you would, back to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, we'll finish up this morning our, what we began last week, namely verses 18 through 22. So 1 Peter 3, chapters, uh, verses 18 through 22. Now again, as we know, the, as we've been reminded of many times, if you're familiar with the book of 1 Peter, he's writing to believers who are suffering. He's encouraging us. He's encouraging them. He's encouraging us. He's encouraging believers throughout uh, the ages to remember to live righteously even when suffering for that righteousness. To live with hope, to live with a confident eye towards God's ultimate purposes for us in Christ Jesus. And that is those purposes that will be realized in their fullness when he returns in power and glory to establish his kingdom on the earth when he vanquishes all of his enemies and his glory alone reigns on a rejuvenated, on a regenerated earth. Now in this passage then, Peter is doing something very specific. He's looking at Christ as a model, but not as he did back in chapter 2, as a model of suffering so that we would suffer well, but actually as a model of overcoming suffering, a model of the one who was victorious, so that we would know the end of our hope, namely to live and bask in the victory of Jesus Christ, which he accomplished For us, which he accomplished on our behalf, his victory over sin, his victory over death, his victory over all of the demonic realm, which in fact were the spiritual forces and power behind the persecution of the believers to whom he's writing and believers throughout the history of the world. It's Satan who prowls around like a roaring lion, he says later in chapter 5. But all of that is overcome in the reality of Christ's atoning death and in his resurrection. And so... The point is this, that Christ's life, Christ's work, Christ's person is the pattern for our own. And that everything that he accomplished in his life, we participate in by virtue of our union with him. Therefore, his victory is our victory. And we are to live in the light of this reality. Now, we all know this kind of suffering to some degree, if that could be something from the site, from being slighted at work or losing friends or whatever it may be. We have brethren around the world who know this kind of suffering and what it means to live righteously, who know it in truth and far deeper than we do in terms of physical suffering and in terms of loss of the things of this world. We have brethren who are at this very moment in fear for their lives, brethren who at this very moment would treasure to have only a page of the Bible that we carry around without fear, our brethren who have lost family, who have have lost children, who have lost jobs, who have been expelled from their lands, our brethren who now are wasting away in prison and dealing with fear and of what is coming upon them and what might happen to those whom they love. So we're a part of that church. And so this word is to us the church. And though our experience of this might be in some ways limited, it is certainly not the experience of our brethren around the world who are as much a part of the body of Christ as we are here who know him. And so thinking of that and being aware of that, of the suffering of our other brethren around the world and the suffering of those who have gone before us is is helpful because it it reminds us, it brings us to a a kind of sobriety in our own own life. It it brings us back to a biblical reality so that we don't get lost in uh, our culture and the ease at which so many of us live life. And it reminds us again, uh, or it reminds us by these illustrations and of those who've gone before us and suffered of the reality of these very words. It brings an extra level of truth, depth of truth. One example of that that I want to mention to you, just to open up and bring us into this, 
Because it so much reflects the reality of what Peter is talking about in our passage this morning. And it's by an, an early church martyr. Some of you may be familiar with her. Her name is Perpetua. Perpetua. Have you all heard of Perpetua, some of you? She was, of course, a woman. Her name was Vibia Perpetua. She was born of a noble class. She was born into a wealthy family. She had some unique privileges that came along with that. One of those was that she was educated and could write. And because of that, God had actually prepared her to write an account of her testimony in her martyrdom. It's a testimony of her martyrdom that has come down to us throughout the centuries. And it has come down to us as one of the the greater testimonies, there's many, of what it means to trust in God in the midst of suffering. And not only to trust in God, and here's the particular connection with what Peter's pointing us to here, to trust in God through the midst of the most intense kind of suffering because of the absolute assurance of her victory at the end. So in her mind and in the mind of her fellow martyrs, death was not the end. Death was not defeat as though it looked to a pagan world. Death to her was actually the ultimate victory. It was the ultimate triumph over the forces of evil. It was ultimately a triumph over all that would tempt her to deny Christ. And so let me just briefly give you some accounts from her written testimony. When she was first discovered as a Christian and she was put under a house arrest, a confinement... Her father, knowing what the end of this could possibly come, pleaded with her many, many times. One particular time when she was home and her father pleaded with her uh, to deny Christ and to simply make a sacrifice to Caesar, which would have alleviated her from any of the suffering. She said this to him. She said, Father, let me give you an example. Do you see this vessel lying here, this little pitcher or whatever? And he responded, yes, I see it. She said, could you call it by another name than what it is? And he said, no. And she said, it is the same with me. I cannot be called anything other than what I am, a Christian. A Christian. She knew her identity in Christ. And she knew what this identity would cost her. But she knew that this identity was unchangeable. It was not something that she had an option with. Whatever the cost may come. She later was baptized at the point of that statement. She would not yet been baptized into the church. So in the early church, there was a separation very often. Now, in the New Testament, we see it immediately. What developed over a period of time was that there was a period of instruction after a profession of faith. They were catechumens, they were called. This is, and she's actually from the 3rd century, the 200s. Uh, And they would be instructed in the faith, instructed on what it meant to be called a Christian, instructed on the consequences. And then when they were fine, then they would later be accepted into the church through baptism and publicly identified as a member of the church. So they were saved and then later they were baptized. And so she was baptized after this episode with her father. They then took her away, came when she would not recant and they took her and threw her in a dungeon. And she says, I was terrified. Because I had never experienced such gloomy darkness before. What an awful day that was. And yet through some series of events, her faith was strengthened and she later made this statement. The prison became a palace to me. Well, in the course of her time there, she had these particular dreams and visions that God gave to her to prepare her for the time to come. They were dreams that were given to her. We would trust by the Spirit to strengthen her. And one of these was a dragon of enormous size that was 
out to prevent her from going up a golden ladder that she saw reaching into heaven that was full with daggers and thorns and other things. And yet in this dream, she stomped on the head of the dragon and she understood that that was the temptation that Satan would bring against her to cause her to fail in the day of her trial. And yet it was a confidence too that God gave her that her faith would overcome Again, after being in prison, she was called before the Roman officials and she was given the opportunity to recount, to make a sacrifice to the emperor during this time. She, her father came to her, again pleaded with her with, with many parental expressions of love, causing her to turn, to not do this, not bring this on her family. And this is particularly touching because she was a favored one of her father. And it was also particularly touching Because she had a very young child whom at this time she was still nursing. And her father comes carrying this child and pleading with her not to abandon her family and not to abandon her child. And yet she would be unmoved though her heart was broken by this. As time would go on and they brought her into the arena with others that she was with. She gives this account. The crowd began to cheer and my comrades started singing psalms. I approached the referee and accepted the victory branch. He kissed me and said, peace be with you, daughter. Excuse me, this is a vision that she had of her going into the arena. This vision, he kissed me and said, peace be with you, daughter. Just as I was heading in triumph toward the gate of life, I awoke. And this vision told me it wasn't wild beasts I'd be facing in the arena, but the devil himself. Yet I knew I would win the victory. Being in prison, being separated from her family, being separated from her child, knowing that she was going to undergo the most terrible suffering, she viewed it as victory. It was the time of her winning, not the time of her losing. One of the editors of... This account that's come down to us wrote this. At the, last, at the last day, their victory dawned and the martyrs proceeded cheerfully from the prison to the amphitheater as though they were marching to heaven. Their appearance was honorable and if they happened to tremble, it was not for fear, but for joy. As they knew that their soon coming death was temporary, but the glories that awaited them were eternal. As she was in the ring and there were certain things done to her and, the, and she was in a very weakened state and particularly for Perpetua, it was a bull that was set upon her and was tossing her about in the ring. And, and so enamored with the, was she with her commitment to be a testimony to Christ that even though bruised and broken but not yet dead, she gives this account, or the editor gives this account. The cow tossed Perpetua first and she landed on her hips sitting up. She immediately straightened her tunic where it was ripped along the side to cover her thighs. For Perpetua cared more about modesty than pain. And then she sought her hairpin and straightened her disheveled hair. She believed it was improper for a martyr to die with her hair unbound, which would make it look like she was mourning in her moment of triumph. Again, she was concerned that in any way her testimony and her sacrifice would be thought of as anything less than her triumphant victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so she went through. Eventually, she was put to death by what is given as the account of an unskilled gladiator who actually kept stabbing her but wasn't very good at it because he was trembling so much for fear himself that eventually she took the blade of the gladiator, put it to her vital organs to show him where to stab, and then she died there. And at the end, this account that's come down to us, 
uh, this is given. Hail, you supremely brave and blessed martyrs. Truly, you have been called and chosen for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Anyone who magnifies and honors and worships him ought to read these exemplary stories for the edification of the church. These new accounts of miraculous power are no less important than the stories of old. They remind us that one and the same Holy Spirit is always at work, even now, along with God the Father Almighty and His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom be the glory and infinite power forever and ever. Amen. So what's the connection? Is this. That these words of victory, this confidence of faith to which Peter points us to here, is the confidence that has sustained God's people throughout the ages. It is the reality of the coming of Christ. It is the reality of sins forgiven. It is the reality of belonging to a kingdom that cannot be shaken and will be established on earth that enables God's people to live separate from this world, separate from the temptations of sin, boldly and courageously against the threats against our faith, to glorify Christ and to know that one day all things will be set right. So let's finish this account this morning of where Peter points us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we are again looking at the victorious suffering of Christ on our behalf. Last week we noted the glory of the Christ in bringing us to God and the glory of Christ as victorious over enemies. And this morning we'll See, the glory of Christ as a Savior from judgment and the glory of Christ who is Lord over all. Let me read the passage and then we'll look more closely. Beginning in verse 18. Peter says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. Now remember that Peter is giving these instructions as an explanation and as an encouragement to the previous command in verse 17, where he says, it's better if you suffer for doing what is right according to the will of God. And then he moves into this illustration. That Christ died once for our sins, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. And this we looked at last time. This is the great end of the gospel, to be reconciled to God. We who were at enmity with God have been made children of God, been made friends of God through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Unless there be any hint that this is something that is based on merit or goodness in the believer, he reminds us that we were the unjust, just as those who persecute us are unjust, we weren't, were among their number. And that what we have experienced is grace. The grace, as he began the letter, to those who are chosen and to the elect, to those on whom God has set his love. And he says then, so it was Christ, the just, 
the righteous one who died for the unjust and the unrighteous ones. Why? That he might bring us to God. And we looked at the glory of Christ as victorious over our enemies. The one who appeared to the world to be weak. The one who appeared to the world to be defeated because of his death. In fact, is the one who is victorious over all. And Peter brings us to that by pointing us to what happened immediately upon his death. He went, in verse 19, and he made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Which I suggested, although there are other legitimate interpretations, that refers to those prison, those spirits, those fallen demons, those fallen angels who are demonic, who were active in the time of the flood, who bore a corrupting influence on the earth, on man, and brought about or were part of that which brought about God's anger on humanity that incited him to destroy the world with a flood. And the proclamation here then is a proclamation of victory. It's not a proclamation of the gospel that some may be saved. It's not a proclamation that brings release to Old Testament saints that are now let out of their place of holding into the glories of Christ. It's not a second opportunity for those after death. It is a proclamation of his victory. It's a proclamation of his victory. Which, again, is alluded to in the end of this in verse 22 when it says that Christ is at the right hand of God, a place of authority and a power, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. That is the angelic realm. And so this is a proclamation of that victory, again, to his readers, a reminder, just as reflected in Perpetua, Perpetua that we are those who live in the victory of Jesus Christ. And whatever all of hell might bring against us, whatever demonic power might be assailed against us, whatever threats that might come from this world and from those who hate the name of Christ, we are those who are victorious. And death is merely entrance into the expression of the first taste of the fullness of this glory. And he says this is then again as the encouragement for being righteous. And as a footnote, one of the Romans guards who saw the faith of Perpetua and the others ended up becoming saved. Because he had no way to explain this faith, this power that was evident in them that enabled them to live the way that they did in light of such threats. So Christ is victorious over enemies. And Christ is victorious in his salvation from judgment. And the salvation he brings from judgment. And that's where we'll look this morning. Beginning in verse 20. He describes this time in which... These spirits lived to whom he proclaimed victory as the time when they were once disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Peter's link here then to the time period of Noah in which these imprisoned spirits fell forms a parallel then to the salvation of his readers, to the salvation of us. This is a victory over circumstances and evil forces that are parallel to what the church faces today. And it is a reminder, just as a footnote here, that God's work of overcoming the forces of evil often comes through judgment. The exodus, the redeeming of his people, God judged the nation of Israel, but he saved his people. 
At the cross, God judged sin, but he saved those for whom he redeemed in Christ. And so here in the flood is a picture of God's judgment on the world, but in that judgment is the salvation of Noah and his family. So what are the parallels? I'm going to just mention these fairly quickly. What is the wisdom that we are to gain with these readers from this connection? First of all, this. That just as today, in the days of Noah, there was the warning and the threat of God's coming judgment. There was the warning and the threat of God's coming judgment. Now this is something that is interesting. Because this is a truth that would be hidden from us if we got our theology from church nurseries. And murals that are on the wall. In which the picture of the flood is usually of a happy, grinny-faced Noah and his family and these delighted animals that are coming into the ark. It's a scene of happiness. It's a scene of joy, almost as if it were pulled out of the garden. It's a scene in which there's only goodness all around. But that's not the biblical portrait. These animals were brought to Noah to escape judgment. To escape the judgment that God was going to bring on the world. This is a message that the church, not saying this is the motivation behind you know, children's nursery murals and pictures, but it is a message that the church has often failed to present honestly, particularly the contemporary church, that there is judgment that is coming on the world, that salvation isn't salvation from your problems, it's not salvation from depression, it's not salvation from a bad marriage, it's not salvation from discouraging life circumstances, it's not salvation from disappointments, it's salvation from God's judgment. It's salvation from the consequences of sin. And so that's what it was there. These are in the days of Noah when God's patience Patience was being demonstrated. Paul said to the Thessalonians that they are saved and that we are saved from the wrath to come. And so it was there. And so Genesis 6-3 tells us that for 120 years God was patient. And just for those who may have heard this, that's not referring to the age of man and how long we live. It refers to how long Noah was on the earth building the ark in anticipation of the promise of the flood. 120 years God's patience waited. 120 years was God's patient warning to humanity of the judgment that was coming for their sin. And we know that they knew what God intended to do. That it wasn't just a weird person building a boat in a land where it had never rained. But Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Noah not only had the living demonstration of this coming judgment and building the ark, but he preached the righteousness of God. He preached, we assume in that, repentance. He preached for men to turn from their evil ways. And God's patience included then both his withholding of judgment and his call to repentance. That's the patience of God. That's the patience of God. Has it ever hit you? Take for a moment. I can remember riding in a truck one time when I was a an old job I used to have, and it hit me as I'm looking around. I was living in Los Angeles at the time in the city, and for whatever I was thinking about, uh, thinking of all of the sin that is taking place at that moment in the whole world. All of the blasphemy, the immorality, the lying, the thievery, the violence, the abuse, 
God sees that all at one time collectively, and yet he restrains his hand. He restrains his hand. Beloved, we live in the patience of God. We live in the patience of God. But there's a problem with this. There's a problem with it. And the problem with God's patience is this, that to the sinner, it makes them think less of their sin. It makes them think less of their sin. It makes them think that the idea of holiness really isn't that serious and God really isn't that angry. To the unregenerate sinner who does not have the personal conviction and sense of the corruption of sin within them, the withholding of wrath and the withholding of immediate judgment against sin causes them actually to be strengthened in sin, to gain more confidence in sin, to gain more confidence in rebellion. Let me give you a few examples of this. This warning is throughout Scripture. Ecclesiastes 8.11 Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men are given fully to do evil. Judgment is withheld, strengthened to do evil. God is patient, more bold in my sin. The choice to pursue evil and to disregard the coming warning of judgment is actually called later by the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, insanity. Insanity. Listen to what he says in Ecclesiastes 9.3. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. That's a good translation of the term, which one lexicon describes this way. The root expresses the irrationality of insanity. In other words... To live life without an understanding of the judgment that is to come is to live life irrationally, foolishly, insanely. One Old Testament scholar says this, Madness is in their heart, their life long. For without taking heed to God's will and to what is pleasing to God or seeking after instruction, they think only of the satisfaction of the inclination and of their inclinations and lust. Their thoughts do not rise above their own lust. That is a definition of what it means to be dead in sin. And that is what is produced in the heart of men when God is patient in the heart of unregenerate unregenerate men. That can happen in our own life when God withholds discipline. He's patient and patient and finally he has to bring discipline into the life of believers so that we would be reminded of the seriousness of sin and might know the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So that's what we experience today. Just flip over quickly. Just flip over quickly to 2 Peter chapter 3. He's going to bring this up again. He says in verse 3 of 2 Peter 3, he says, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. What's to worry? You give me warning, but guess what? I sin, and I wake up the next morning, and I sin again, and all's just as it was. That's the thinking. And so he says, For when they maintain this, however, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. In other words, God at that time had prepared creation to be destroyed with water. And that escaped their notice. Even though God had warned them repeatedly. Again, his patience produced apathy toward the warning. 
And then he says in verse 7, But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So we're not living in a world too different from the world of Noah. That's his point. God at that time warned. God was being patient and God had prepared the world to be destroyed with water. In our time, God warns, God is being patient and God has prepared our present, this present creation to be destroyed with fire. With fire. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like if you could picture it in terms of a divine sense that right now we as the earth and there is a sword hanging over the head of every unbeliever, even the entire earth, that is restrained by nothing other than the patient hand of God until his appointed time. That's the message that we have. It's part of the message that we have to unbelievers. And it should produce repentance. Look at verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is one like, like one day. That's merely talking about perspective from the eternal one. Verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. It should produce repentance. But as Paul warns... In Romans, the kindness of God should lead to repentance, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're only storing up wrath until the day of wrath. If you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ, and you breathe and you live and you walk out of here on your own two legs, you are walking out with a sword over your head and the divine judgment of God could come at his own will. There's a warning to you. If you think that you sin in the darkness and it goes unnoticed, you are wrong. If you think that your sin will not have consequences because you wake up tomorrow morning and it's as it was the morning before, that's irrational. And it's foolish. And the warning would be not to remain in that condition because judgment will come. For the believer, how should this affect us? Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, who wrote some things that are hard to understand, but remind of the same truths. What should the patience of God produce for the unbeliever who is at this moment, and some among us, who are walking in the stubbornness of your heart and rebellious, it should produce repentance. Repentance. What should it produce in the believer? It should produce godliness. It should produce godliness. That's what he's saying here in 1 Peter 3. Remember, this is an encouragement to live righteously and keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles even though they persecute. It should be godliness. I just make a footnote How often have we run into people who have this fascination with the details of eschatology and how things are going to work out, but don't have a corresponding holiness in their life? 
they're more interested in those things that divide sometimes and uh, dealt with many like that. And the encouragement is, is your fascination with that should produce fear and humility, repentance, obedience. So that's the first connection, is that they were living at a time when God's patience was withholding his judgment, but his warning was calling men to repent. Secondly, what is the connection? He says, and again in verse 20, during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. It's a time when the evil were many and the righteous were few. This is a powerful connection. Remember, here Peter is writing his first hearers, the first readers of this letter, were those who were scattered abroad because of the persecution of the Roman government. So here is this growing and burgeoning group of the church and of believers, and yet living within this large empire of Rome and experiencing its force and adversarial attitude towards this new sect, what they thought at first was just a Jewish sect, towards the authority, the imperial authority of Rome. They were few, the weak and the small against the many. And so here is the connection. And so was it in the time of Noah. Here you have the whole world mocking and rejecting the warning and these few only ate who were being oppressed, the few who believed in the midst of the many who rejected and persecuted. And the implication is, in Genesis chapter 6, that Noah and his family were quite possibly, you can't know this 100%, but quite possibly the only righteous ones that God identified on the earth at that time. It's amazing. Verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great, Genesis 6, on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and he was sorry he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart, and he said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I made them. But Noah, Noah found grace, found favor in the eyes of God. Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted the way upon the earth. Except for Noah, except for Noah and his family. And here he was, the few among the many. And that's the case for us as a church. Whatever, however great our numbers might appear, we still have to remember we're the minority on the face of the earth. Just a Quick search from 2015, a Pew Research identified 31.2, I think it was, 31.2% of the world population identifies as Christian. Now within that 31.2%, that was going to take on Roman Catholics, every branch of Protestantism, even liberal branches that identify as Christian. So if you were generous, I hope I did my math right. If you were generous, and I, I would say this is, too generous, but even if you took 60% of that number, 60% of that number, you'd still then only have about 18% of the world's population that were genuinely believers. We are small in number. Small in number, standing against the wealth and the might and the power of those who would oppose Christianity. As a matter of fact, in 2013, the Vatican said that 1.4 billion Catholics were worldwide, and so that would be a part of that number as well. 
Some have maintained, actually, that the number of believers will continue to increase throughout the course of the world until eventually there are more believers than unbelievers. Actually, Spurgeon held to that and others. He thought in the end more would be saved than there are condemned. Post-millennialists, if some of you understand that, hold to that position. There's going to be an increasing of the influence of righteousness on the earth until ultimately God, the earth, is prepared for Christ to return. Some hold that today. However, that doesn't fit the passage here, the overall thrust of Scripture, in which says, broad is the road to destruction and many will find it. Revelation speaks of many being saved out of the time of the tribulation, numbers that cannot even be counted. But he also, just before that, talks about one plague alone at the very beginning of God's judgments that wipes out a third or a fourth of the earth. Those being unbelievers. So the point here is really just simply this. Like the time of Noah, Christians are few in number. Depending on where you live in the world, that's, that's felt even more intensely than others. And although Christ is building his church, and although the church is growing in some areas of the world, while decreasing in others, namely Europe, the fact remains that we are fewer in number, and there are more who that oppose Christ than join him. And yet, as in the days of Noah, this is only a temporary advantage for us as the church. It's only a temporary disadvantage. Until the time of judgment comes, and then there will be a reversal. And on the new heaven and the new earth, it'll only be righteous people. It'll only be those who are redeemed and in Christ. And that's what Scripture calls us to look toward. Let me note a third connection here. It's a time when God's judgment on many brought salvation to a few. They were saved through the water. They were saved through the water. In what sense were they saved through the water? That little, not to be overly grammatic here, but that little preposition there that's translated through could be taken in a couple of senses. The idea of they were brought safely through the water. Or in another sense, it could be said that they were saved by the water. They were saved by the water. To save, they saved through the water, meaning that as God brought his judgment on earth, Noah and his family were protected through the judgment. The other says by the water, would say that the water itself and the judgment itself of the water was the salvation of Noah and his family. In this way, it eradicated the wicked from the earth. And they were saved from that evil generation. And they were saved from the influence. Actually, both ideas are possible. But the main point here I want to just point out is this, is that there was salvation. That salvation of Noah was a salvation, is the, models the salvation that we have in Christ. Look at what he says. We're going to just jump to this. Verse 21, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, at first, this may seem like a difficult verse, but it's really quite wonderful. It's really amazing, amazing, the wonderful truth. Corresponding to that, corresponding to that, the salvation that God enacted through the ark that he demonstrated in saving Noah. The term there translated corresponding to that, which is probably the best translation, has this idea. Pertaining to that which corresponds in form and structure to something else, either as an anticipation of a latter reality or as a fulfillment of a prior type. There's actually one other use of that word in the New Testament. It's in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 9, verse 24, which says this, Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a copy, that's our word, 
of the true one, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. So it's the same idea here and yet reversed. The writer of Hebrews is saying the temple, the tabernacle, the priesthood, all of that, particularly entering into the tabernacle, was a copy and a shadow of what the reality is, of what Christ actually entered into, which was the presence of God for us. Those things all symbolized the presence of God among his people. But there was a degree of separation. And we're saying, but that's just a shadow because Christ by his own blood has brought us where there is no separation but into the presence of God so that we might boldly approach the throne of grace. Those things were a symbol. Christ is the reality. Peter takes it in the other direction. And he says, in fact, that the baptism is the picture that is connected to that Old Testament reality of Noah being saved through the flood. In what way then does it correspond? In this way. As Noah and family were saved through the waters, that is saved from God's judgment by water in which he removed the wicked from the earth, saved by being protected in the ark, so the believer is saved from the wrath of God coming on the earth through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the connection. The faith that unites a believer to Christ and brings the cleansing of regeneration and the reality of a good conscience is pictured by baptism. But here's where it gets interesting. He says, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but the appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In what way does baptism save you? Is he referring to some saving benefit through the act itself? That if you're dunked in the water and immersed and come up, that you will be saved or that that is a part of salvation? Of course, that is the official teaching of some. The Roman Catholic Church holds the baptismal regeneration of infants. The Church of Christ, by official doctrine, holds to baptism as necessary to salvation and regeneration. Those who hold that, however, would fall under Paul's warning to the Galatians. When these Judaizers came in and said the same thing, very similar, saying, hey, you have to believe in Christ. You have to believe in Jesus, the Messiah. If you don't, you cannot be saved. But... An expression of that faith and part of that faith is that you receive circumcision. To them, Paul says in Galatians 5, I, Paul, say to you, if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. So for those who would hold that that is true, that says my salvation is not yet completed, my reconciliation is not yet completed until I have done the act of baptism, my regeneration has not been experienced until I am baptized, to you the warning of Paul would come. If you hold to that, you have been severed from Christ. He is of no benefit. None. So those who would hold that fall under that warning. The point is not the act of water baptism is a means or even a part of salvation. In fact, this is a note, it's possible to be water baptized and unregenerate. Trish was baptized and unregenerate, attending even a good church. We have an example of that in Acts chapter 8. We won't turn there. Of Simon the magician, possibly the same Simus Magus, later a heretic recognized by the church, who was baptized, who believed it said the message, but later showed that his heart was not yet converted. And conversely, it's possible to be regenerate and not yet baptized. 
Perpetua was saved before she was baptized. She had been a catechumen for a period of time. During that time, they had believed in Christ. They were following. Her life was transformed. Although the official recognition of that by the church at that time came later and she was baptized and recognized to be a part of the body of Christ. So it's possible to have a kind of faith as we read this morning that does, isn't really born out of an appeal to God for a good conscience. So what does he mean here? What does he mean here? Well, let me just give a broad picture here because this is going to be necessary to understand this. It's actually not very confusing. It's pretty simple. But it's going to have to come within a framework to be clear. The term baptisma or baptizo, that's a noun and a verb, had the idea of being immersed and it's used in a variety of contexts. It can be spoken of literally. It's sometimes used about the washing of dishes or the washing of hands in Mark chapter 10, or excuse me, Mark chapter 7, verse 4, for example. Simply means that they're washing. It was an identifying mark of repentance in the ministry of John the Baptist in anticipation of the coming Messiah of Jesus. It was a literal dunking of water there. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. And that act of baptism, that act of the nation coming out to John the Baptist to identify essentially with the unbelieving pagans and the need to be brought into the people of God, that was the repentance, was a way to prepare the hearts of the people. Jesus told James and John in a metaphorical use that they would undergo a kind of baptism. He said, you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized, referring there to his coming suffering. His coming suffering. Paul refers metaphorically to Israel being baptized into Moses, being immersed under his leadership and God's leadership of the nation through him. Jesus himself was baptized literally by John to mark his public ministry. It marked his submission to do God's will. It identified him with those he came to save. And it anticipated his atoning death and his resurrection. It set the pattern for all of those who would also later be identified with him through new covenant baptism. However, the two most significant ideas of baptism related to the new covenant are this. And this is what we really need to understand. Fairly quickly. Is this, first, that of spirit baptism and water baptism. Spirit baptism and water baptism. John the Baptist noted this. In God's, he was recounting God's word to him so that he would recognize the Messiah. In John chapter 1, verse 33, he said this. Or the God said to John, This is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. In other words, the one on whom you see in the dove coming and remaining on him. This is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Just before his ascension, John told, Jesus told the disciples that John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in Acts 1.5, which happened at Pentecost. In other words, the unique ministry of Christ as the crucified, risen, and exalted Lord through whom the Spirit would come after receiving the promise was a baptism of the Holy Spirit. That is a particular new covenant blessing. In this baptism, a person is united to Christ, empowered for ministry by the indwelling Spirit. It is to be immersed in Christ and to be baptized into His body. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, the Spirit has baptized us into the body of Christ. It is to be brought into union with Christ, to be a part of His body. Other things associated with it, though distinct, are regeneration, indwelling, filling, sealing, 
But it is, all of these are connected to the idea of being baptized in the Spirit. It is at the heart of salvation. There is no one baptized in the Holy Spirit who is not a believer. There is no believer not baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's not something we ask for. It's not something we seek. It's something that God does in salvation. Secondly, there's water baptism. Water baptism is the symbol ordained by the Lord that identifies the believer with Christ and his person in his saving work. It identifies him or her with the body of Christ, the church. It is the God-ordained expression of faith that marks the spiritual reality of being united with Christ and all of his benefits. It's an outward sign with an internal reality. So those are the two kinds of baptism. One is the substance, spirit baptism. The other is the symbol, which is water baptism. Salvation happens at spirit baptism. Water baptism is the expression of faith that publicly, that openly identifies one with the body of Christ. Identifies one who is already a part of the body of Christ by baptism of the spirit. So when scripture speaks of spirit baptism and the realities of salvation, the mind of the readers would immediately associate it with the symbol, which is why Peter has to make the distinction that he does here in verse 21 to show that's not what I'm talking about. Baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. In other words, Peter immediately dismisses the idea that he's saying the act of baptism has any role in salvation, and he immediately reminds them then in that I'm talking about the baptism that unites you to Christ, the baptism that is consistent with your expression of faith in Christ, the baptism that unites you to Christ and saves you from the wrath to come because he bore the wrath for us, the just for the unjust. That's the point. The baptism in water gives expression to the reality of faith, The baptism that one has already experienced by the Spirit. It's the faith that saves. It's the reality of union with Christ that saves. And Peter is very careful to make that distinction. I'm not talking about the act. I'm talking about your being brought into union with Christ that the the water baptism simply is a symbol of. But that's not what saves you. What saves you is being united to Christ. What saves you is being found in Christ. He says here it's an appeal to God. Some have pledged. You could take the word that way. I would say appeal is the better translation. It is an appeal to God for a good conscience. It's a reflection of genuine conviction of sin, the awareness of guilt, the hatred of its corrupting and pollution before God. It is the faith in one who's been made alive that wants to be rid of the guilt of sin. And it's corrupting influence that has cried out to God to be saved, to be forgiven, to be washed, to be made new, to be cleansed. And that is the kind of faith that is the candidate for water baptism. That's the kind of faith of the one who is truly in union with Christ and can declare that reality in the waters of baptism. And the cleansing comes not through the water. This is another thing. Some of you have hyphens in your Bibles. That's well put. That's an aside, actually, in this explanation. It should read like this. If you were to read it without the aside, it would be this. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how it would read without the aside. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that saves. And the end of all of this 
is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the first instance of his exaltation. And in that exaltation, in that rising from the dead, he ascended to the right hand of God the Father in verse 22, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. All of the angelic realm submitted to him. They were facing persecution because of spiritual forces at work against them. Peter's encouragement is to remind them that Christ overcame that persecution. Not only did he, but he destroyed and was victorious over every spiritual power. He reigns unchallenged in his glory. He reigns unchallenged in his authority. He reigns unchallenged in the fulfillment of his promise. And because he reigns unchallenged, his people have confidence. The devil that prowls around, the reformers said, helpfully is God's devil. He's under God's authority and God's control. Why? Because Christ is at the right hand of the Father. And angels and authorities and powers, all referring to angelic powers, are submitted to him under his feet. He rules and he reigns. This is what's pictured in the Lord's Supper. One is that we are the body of Christ. Though he is in heaven right now at the right hand of the Father, ruling waiting, anticipating that day when he will return and establish his kingdom on earth. We as his people and taking these elements are saying we are that body of Christ here. We are the ones in union with Christ here. We are the ones who belong to him who have obtained the victory through his death and through his resurrection. We are the ones who will pursue righteousness here. We are the ones who will be the light of the world for Christ here. We are the ones who have fellowship with him. That is then means this is a ordinance for believers. If you're not a believer, don't take the elements. If you're a believer and you have unrepentant sin, not repentant sin, but unrepentant sin, don't take the elements. If you are a believer who, stumbling and falling though we may be, is seeking daily to walk with the Lord and keeping short accounts, then this is a great time of worship. Let me pray, and as the men come forward, we'll take these elements and then worship the Lord together in the table. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy to us. None of us stands before you on our own. On our own, we have guilt, but in Christ, we have forgiveness. On our own, we have weakness and fear, but in Christ, we have courage. We have a victory won on our behalf. On our own, we have no hope, but in Christ, we have a certain hope, grounded in your resurrection, our Lord Jesus. Help us to live in light of this with joy, with fellowship, with obedience, with usefulness to you in this world. We pray this in your name. Amen.